Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with the author of the Beacon Press book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. This book has been getting a lot of buzz. It just came out within the last few months, so I'm really excited to get the author. She's a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, Dinah. Ramey Berry. I was really excited to get her uh, on the program today to uh, talk with you all. Um, she's really open, you know, friendly, and, and this is a heavy topic, um, but you know, it's one that we all need to know about, and it's about s- slaves and, and their values throughout their their lives. So uh, sit back and listen and enjoy. I think you will really like this. And again, the book is The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I have the great pleasure of being here today with Dina Ramey Berry of the University of Texas at Austin. She is an associate professor of history and African and African diaspora studies. And we're going to be talking with her today about her book from the Beacon Press, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved, From Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. Hello, Donna. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. And I must say, before we go any further, shout out to uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Calvin Shermerhorn, for connecting us. Also, also the author of a great book on slavery, on the economics of slavery. So check out his book as well. And he connected us. So I wanted to make sure I gave Calvin his proper respect before we went any further. Right. Thank you, Calvin. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely here. Um, And so, yes, I've heard so much about your book from Calvin and from 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 others. Your book is getting a lot of uh, of attention and, and some great reviews. Donna, so I definitely wanted to get you on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel, to give our audience a chance to hear from you directly about your outstanding research and your, your great book. I appreciate that. I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure. And before we get really into, you know, a lot of the details of the book, you know, the audience really likes to know about you all as scholars, to know you all are, re- you know, regular people, people like us, and they can aspire to become a Dr. Dinah Remy Berry, right? And they can yes. do the type of things that you do. So maybe give us a little bit about your background. Okay. So um, I grew up in a small Northern California town. Okay. I didn't mention it in the book, but I will tell you here for your audience. Um, I grew up in Davis, California, which is outside of Sacramento, mm-hmm. small university town. Um, very small African-American population. Uh, my high school graduation class had 365 students. Ten of us were African-American. And um, I wanted to go to college as far away, but I kind of wanted to stay in California at the time. So I ended up going to school at UCLA, and I got all my degrees there, my BA, my MA, and my PhD. Um, I ran track, so I was a Division I sprinter and triple jumper. And I competed and and ran with Bobby Kersey, Jackie Joyner Kersey's husband. And um, that was what drew me to UCLA at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up staying there for graduate school. And um, I was an econ major for the first four years of my undergraduate years, Mm -hmm. which explains why I am 
somewhat comfortable with numbers for a historian. <laughs> much more than me. <laughs> <laughs> and much more than most of my colleagues um, in the history, in the field of history. Right. Um, and then I uh, switched to history after taking two classes, one from a professor I did not particularly care for and another one from the woman who became my advisor, Dr. Mm-hmm. Brenda Elaine Stevenson. Okay. Shout out. Yeah, and then after I finished my degree, I had my first job at Arizona State, which is where Calvin Shimmerhorn is now. Um, He wasn't there at the time, but taught there for a couple years. Then I went to Michigan State and taught at Michigan State for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I've now landed at UT Austin, and I've been here for seven years. Okay. And I'm going to be being considered for a full professor uh, now and should should have that news in the next year or so. Oh, well, we'll be wishing you luck with that. Thank you. And those of us in the academic field know that that's <laughs> like one of those ultimate goals you want to get to have that stability. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you're sort of like myself. I'm from the East Coast. You're from the West Coast. But we both got to Texas. We're not born in Texas, but we got here as, as quickly as we could, as they like to say down here, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's, thank you for sharing that, you know, about your background there, um, Dinah. And, and it just reminds me that, you know, you are, you know, what a lot of uh, your schools look for, our schools look for. You are a true scholar athlete. Yes. I like, and thank you for saying scholar first. Yes. You were a, a true scholar athlete. You know, you were, at, you know, an athlete, and you know, at the undergraduate level, but you went ahead and uh, continued your studies, and that's outstanding. So, so, so for those of you who are in high school or you're in college and you're an athlete and you're, you're thinking that you're going to college to be an athlete, uh, you're actually going to be a student. You know. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're not doing good in school, you can't compete. Right. You can't compete, and there's life after sports. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Though, Diane, I suspect you probably could still outrun me right now. That would be my guess. Oh, I don't know. It's, I'm kind of a has-been. I got, I got to Texas and was trying to train for master's track and field, and I was going to compete. And I uh, went out and trained and then tore my hamstring oh. and my rotator cuff. So I've been uh, just out trying to stay healthy right. <laughs> since then. Well, nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with that. And we're mm-hmm. here talking about the book The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. The Value of the Enslaved, From Womb to Grave and Building of a Nation. The author, Dinah, Ramey, Barry. And the book is published by Beacon Press. And she is a history professor and associate professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Not too far from me. My home base is uh, Houston. And so offline, we talked a little Texas and we we will, I'm (laughs) sure, uh, afterwards as, as well. Um, but, Dinah, you know, thank you for sharing that about your background. Let's maybe get into the book a little bit. Um, you know, please share with us, you know, and maybe folk who have, maybe haven't seen the book, you know, maybe some of your main points there and, you know, uh, things you were trying to accomplish with the book. But uh, also, if you don't mind, maybe, uh, you know, talk to our audience about the, the research process, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. how long it took for you to do this. What was your inspiration? What made mm-hmm. you want to, you know, pursue, you know, this, this work? Um, what research methods did you mm-hmm. did you undertake? Because, you know, I like to, to, to ask our authors and scholars those things, because there are many people who listen who want to become, as I said before, they want to become, you know, a scholar like you, a historian, or maybe do some things like this in their own personal life, you know, researching mm-hmm. their own family histories. OK, great. Well, I um, I've always done work on the history of slavery and I didn't always have a great relationship with it. 
Um, and I write about this a little bit in the book mm-hmm. um, in the introduction and the author's note about how I struggled as a child to make sense of this history. And one of the things I wanted to write about was, you know, how enslaved people understood and dealt with the fact that they were treated as a product. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in bigger language, we might say the commodification or treated as a commodity. What does it mean to be treated like a car or a backpack, you know, or any any kind of object that we can buy and sell and trade and barter and, you know, be treated however we want to treat it. Right. So that's what I was interested in. And um, I've written other books and other uh, reference works, and most of my work has been on um, enslaved women mm-hmm. or enslaved people's uh, family and community and labor experiences. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to write about the price of enslaved people mm-hmm. because I had this background in economics, and I had seen like scholars write about how enslaved people were valued, and they would have these monetary values for them, but I never really understood what those values meant. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking to myself, did enslaved people know that they were, you know, they were they were um, appraised, you know, and they, that they had these annual projections in um, in records of how much they were worth? Mm-hmm. Did they know about that? And, and how did they respond to that? And if we're looking at enslaved people being sold, um, what is their role in this? What is their understanding of, of themselves as a commodity or as a product? Right. And how did they grapple with that inside themselves? That was that's what I wanted to know. It's kind of simple, but I was like, I want to know what they think, what they feel. And I looked at all the literature, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of scholars that have written work about um, the slave trade, the sure. transatlantic trade from Africa to the New World communities. But there's also stuff on the domestic slave trade, mm-hmm. you know, looking at those that were traded on U.S. soil. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this book is not about the transatlantic. Okay. It's not about those Africans coming off of ships and being sold. It's about those that were sold after they arrived in America right. and those that were American born. Okay. Um, and so I looked at uh, records to find out how much they were, how much they were selling for. And what I discovered in the process of 10 years of research, <laughs> um, and I could talk about the research process a little bit more, but I did 10 years of research, at a number of wow. different types of archives. Um, throughout the North and the South, and I was trying to find and create a database um, of slave prices, you know, the name, the age, the mm-hmm. sex, the price, the city, so that then I could then make statements and tell the readers, like, what does it mean to be worth $700? What does it mm-hmm. mean um, if you're a male and you're 18 years old in Virginia um, and, you're 18, and you're $1,800 and you're a male in South Carolina at the same age, but you're 2300 I wanted to be able to make sense of that. Unfortunately or fortunately, I couldn't, I didn't have enough data. And I, I had a lot of data. I had about um, 80,000 individual figures of enslaved people, and some of this data was donated to me from economic historians, um, yeah, an economic historian, um, Robert Fogel and Stanley Ingerman. There's a couple, two of them wrote a a book called The Time on the Cross, which was published in the 70s. Um, They gave me their data, which they had collected, and there was 30 years worth of research Mm for them. This is almost unheard of in academic circles of people to donate that level of data. No, it's now right. available online, and I'm going to make my data set um, available online as well. Awesome, good. Yeah, so it's going to be accessible for anybody. But um, So I wanted to look at this data, and while I was doing the research, I realized I didn't have, these weren't representatives. These, like, you know, these, if I have these price patterns, how do I know if there were 4 million African Americans that were freed in 1865, mm. what does this 55,000 or 60,000 
you know, prices that I have, what does this mean? I mean, does this, is this representative? And I didn't feel like I could say that it was with great confidence. Mm. Um, and I was also distracted during the research process of why scholars didn't ask or think about or consider how enslaved people dealt with being treated as a product mm. or being treated as a commodity. So I shifted gears and I wrote about how enslaved people um, at every stage of their lives understood and learned to understand that they were a, co- a commodity and that they were a product and how they lived with that. Mm. And one of the things I discovered is that no matter how there was different price tags put on their bodies, there were appraisals where they were um, projected values of what they thought a person was worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were a projected value of them at, at a given moment over the course of their life. Like, so if they met someone at 22 years old, well, this is how much I think they're worth and how much they're going to be worth for me to purchase them. Okay. Um, but when there, anytime you put something in the market and you sell it, you know, if it's being, if it's, there's barter, bartering and exchanging involved, now that price can go up. So the appraised value of an enslaved person might be 700, but they might be able to sell them for mm. 1300. So it's like cars, right? When you go to a used car lot, mm-hmm. you know, there's an appraisal value. There's a value that's been assigned on the car, but it may, you know, somebody might be willing to pay higher mm-hmm. for that purchase or the same way we buy houses and people mm-hmm. are negotiating and fighting to purchase a house. That house might cost more than it's appraised. Right. And so wow. the majority of, yeah, does that make sense? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So the the price of something is what someone is actually willing to pay, and that can go up or go down. You know, exactly. I was just talking with some students about that last week. Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, so when you think about that, right? So when you go back to the how I got into writing the price for the Mm -hmm. pound of flesh, the value of of the enslaved from womb to grave and the building of a nation, um, was I was trying to think about ways to understand this level of bartering and changing that was happening and being placed upon black people's bodies. And how did black folks respond to that? And when did they first know they were a product and how did, what did they do with that information? You know, did they want to have a high value? Did they care about it? And I get that question. People ask me that all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, did they want to be, you know, priced high? They could care less about their values. What they cared about more was either not being sold to a particular person being, you know, being able to stay with, on a plantation or a farm where their loved ones were right. or to, right. yeah, to, to just connect with their relatives or to go back to a place or to get closer to where their, their partner or their child mm-hmm. was sold years beforehand. And so oftentimes they wanted either to be sold to somebody because that would get them um, an opportunity to reconnect with family. Um, but they could care less what their values were. Um, and so they, but they had particular comments about their values. And that's what I wrote about. So I write about the fact that they're, they might have witnessed sales and auctions mm-hmm. and might have even experienced the separation um, between their parents and not really understood it, like at age two, age three, age four. So I wrote about this. The book begins, you know, before enslaved people were born. So before they were like in the stage of preconception, mm-hmm. um, they were they were treated as commodities. People projected and thought about what, how someone would be worth. Like if they looked at a woman, they'd say, well, how many children do you think she can have? Mm. And what's the value of this woman and her body today, given what we think she might be able to produce in the future? Mm-hmm. So enslaved women were priced with their future increase in mind. That's the term mm. that was used, their future increase um, in mind. And so their, their values fluctuate around fertility and around childbearing age. And once they they've reached the, they've reached, they've 
past uh, childbearing age, their values decrease mm. sharply. They decrease. You know, by the time they're in their early 30s, their values are dropping off pretty significantly. And that's something that economic historians like Bogle and Engerman and there's a, um, other scholars that have also written about this as well. There's sort of a bell curve to this, the, the price of enslaved people. Um, but I, want, I wanted to see if I could add more to this conversation by allowing the enslaved people's voices to be at the center of these conversations. Right, right. A, diff- so, a bit of a different approach. Exactly. And um, so the, the values are there at the beginning of the chapter. I have average prices for the data that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some, each chapter was based on about anywhere from ten to 15,000 different figures. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of them were appraisals and not actual market sales. But I do have, you know, market sales in there. I just didn't have the data set didn't have maybe only 10 percent of the data um, were actually market sales. Um, I was going to, you know, I was going to just just mention just briefly is that a lot of people don't think about the fact, you know, going back to what you said about the, um, you know, the the women and childbearing age and such, you know, you know, I I was a high school history teacher for for many many years, Mm -hmm. and you know when you know you talk about breeding like dogs, you know how they how they put the women together, tried to get the the biggest guy, you know, woman, you know, and you know they're like ah, you know that that didn't really happen. You know, yes, it did. you know, but, you know, but it did. So when you were talking about those things with the women, it, you know, it really made me, you know, think about that. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, uh, I, I wrote about that in a little bit of my first book, Swing the Sickle. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I elaborated can you on say the name of that book one more time. For oh, me? sure. As Swing the Sickle for the Harvest is Ripe, okay. Gender and Slavery in Antebellum, Georgia. OK, good. In case our audience that, wants to go back and look at some of your other works. Oh, yeah. That, and that um, that's more of an academic book, mm-hmm. um, so there's a little more academic language sure. than you find in The Price for the Pound of Flesh, which I wrote for the people. General I wrote audiences. it for general audience. Um, I've always sort of been committed to reaching a broad audience, not just um, the scholars in my field. That's why I'm talking to you, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So anyway, so the book begins before enslaved people are born, and it begins in the bodies of enslaved mothers or future mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it goes from there. Each chapter looks at stages of life. Mm-hmm. So then I go to infancy. So once enslaved people are born, um, each chapter begins with an auction scene and an auction scene of that age range. So mm-hmm. the first child that you see in this book or hear about or read about is an infant mm-hmm. that's being carried to the market by an enslaved man who was told to do so. Um, and she was going to be sold at a public auction. And so I, I use that story because um, some of the earlier literature on slavery said, you know, people weren't separated from their parents. Um, children were kept and they were sold in family groupings. Mm-hmm. And, yes, they were, but not all of them were. No, um, and that wasn't necessarily a priority. I think that's sort of been overemphasized. And even just with the data research that I did, you know, I had thousands of figures. And I, I've said, shared this before. When I was creating this Excel spreadsheet, mm-hmm. um, I had a, a, a column for age in years, you know, and I just put the ages in years. And then I started finding eight-month-old babies, seven-month-old oh. babies, six-month-old babies in the auction on their own. So I had to create a column for age in years. And I was, you know, entering this data as I was going to the archives and looking through plantation records and bills of sales and, and um, broadsides and letters and, and insurance records, all kinds of records. Mm-hmm. And I would just enter the data that I needed to, to, to understand enslaved people's okay. prices. I found a, a three-week-old baby. Oh, my gosh. 
in the market. So I had to create a column for weeks. And I just thought, you know, I can't believe that scholars in the past would write about this as if it never happened. Mm. When we're finding this, and we, you know, we even seen sketches. The cover of my book has a sketch of of a mother reaching out to a baby. Yes. And a lot Very of people powerful. miss the baby. You know, a lot of people miss that little baby. That baby's, I don't know how old, but definitely under one years old. Yeah, and that's she's um, on the, the baby's on the left side of the image. Yeah, right. and there's and, coins and money on the table. Right. And so, so the baby was. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, Donna. I was just going to say, I know, you know this is a podcast, so you, you guys can't see it. But if you go to the uh, our New Books Network page, you'll see a, a copy and, a, you know, an image of the of the cover. You can click through there. You can go to uh, Donna's page at University of Texas at Austin. You can go to the Beacon Press page and you can also go to Amazon to purchase the book directly. Right. And so we're describing this a black and white um, uh, picture on, on the cover there. Um, so the yes. infant on the left side and the mother reaching out on the right side is, is, is hard to look at. But go ahead, Donna. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, the three week old baby was interesting to have to put a column for that. And I say this, I had to stop working because about a week after I found a three week old baby, I found a baby that was three days old that was being sold. And that kind of took the wind out of me for a little bit, you know, um, People ask me about my experience with writing this book, which was, as I mentioned, 10 years. But it was an emotional journey as well, um, yes. in its own way. Um, I, you know, part of me has been doing this work for more than 20 years, so not a whole lot surprises me, but that sort of took the wind out of me for a minute. Yeah. Well, it just, it just hit me right now when you, when, when, when you said that. And um, we're here with, wow. I know I sound not as chipper or triple as I normally do, but <laughs> what Donna just told me just kind of took me aback a, a there, you know, with mm -hmm. a, a baby that, that young. But we're here with the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave, literally from womb yes. to grave in the building of a nation. And the outstanding historian and scholar, Dinah Ramey Berry, she's a professor of history and African and African diaspora studies right down the road from me at the University of Texas at Austin. And so we're here, you know, we're kind of chopping it up, discussing her her book here a little bit. A, a great book. I mean, it's got great reviews and has been noted, you know, uh, um, you know, several times um, that, I, that I've seen in a couple places that I kind of frequent. So, you know, kudos to you. Thank Donna, you. you're doing some 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 great work. Um, so, you know, let's just, you know, talk a little bit more. You, you know, you told us about some of the, the early chapters there, but, you know, please continue about some of the other things yeah. you talk about in your book. So then after I um, go through infancy um, and I'm, it's really around puberty that enslaved children slash young adolescents as mm -hmm. they transition to early adulthood, that they, they start to understand and recognize and make sense of maybe things that they had witnessed mm -hmm. or things that they had experienced but really mm -hmm. couldn't articulate or weren't, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but weren't cognitively available or readily available sure. to, to, to sort of process, right? Um, and so the middle years is when the, the reproduction matters, right? Mm -hmm. So like, as you mentioned about breeding, some males are, are considered, you know, they have them bucks, these breeding bucks where they would mm -hmm. force them to have relationships with women. Um, and, you know, I always say this, I wrote this, I wrote about this in Swing the Sickle, that, you know, we can't assume that just because people were partnered or forced to partner mm -hmm. or forced a couple that they wanted to be with that person. You know, and that's, in my, from my perspective, that is 
what I call third-party rape. Well, these individuals are both being raped. If, if the man has a woman wow. that he considers his wife somewhere else, and the woman has a husband that she considers her husband, but they're forced to have sex with two other people, we can't assume that they readily wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, And so there's a lot of um, sexual ex- exploitation in slavery, and it's not just in fe- female slaves that were, were experiencing this. Third-party um, so, third rape, that's what you called it? That's what I call it, wow. yeah. Mm, powerful. Yeah, thank okay. you. Um, so adolescence is when they understand, they recognize, um, and they say, like, parents said they raised their children to understand themselves as commodities right. and as human beings. So the kids were well, I think the parents, they raised them to, to understand that. And I think that's something that we really haven't talked about much. Mm. Um, historian Wilma King writes about this in Stolen Childhood. Stolen and Childhood. Okay. Stolen Childhood, excellent book um, on the, the fact that enslaved children never really got to be children. You know, Wil- they never. Wilma King is the yes, the author. Wilma okay. King, yep, author of Stolen Childhood, and it's in a second edition. So okay. the second edition came out maybe I think in 2010, if I'm okay. not mistaken, or maybe even later than that. But um, excellent book. Um, so she she calls Wilma King calls this stage when the enslaved person is recognizing themselves. It's this quantum leap into the world of work. Mm. So they're forced after age six or so into the world of work. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point where I write about um, an enslaved boy. I write a boy, about a boy in here, um, Jordan Banks, mm-hmm. who was raised, um, and he was raised with his um, enslaver's child, this guy named Alex. Mm-hmm. Alex was a, white, a young white boy that was about a year older than he. And he said that he recognized that their lives were different. When Alex was sent off to boarding school and he was sent to, quote, scare crows in the fields. Mm. And so it's like this heavy sense of realization um, that enslaved people experience, you know, around six or seven. And from that point forward, they understand that despite the fact that they are human beings, which we all know, mm-hmm. you know, um, they're treated as a product and their lives are different. And um, so as they grow to adulthood, they try to manipulate their sales. They try to disrupt their sales. They try not to be sold to particular people. Mm-hmm. They, they make claims, whether false or not, I don't know, about their health, health mm-hmm. or their, um, their disability. Or their, you know, they'll say, I'm not as healthy as you think I am. Or they'll, they'll yell back while they're in the auction block and say, mm-hmm. I'm not 40 years old. I'm, I'm, I'm not 30 years old. I'm 40 years old. He's lying. You know, they'll call out the auctioneers and they were very disruptive and they resisted. And I think, you know, a lot of what we've read about slavery and there's lots of books on slave resistance, Mm -hmm. um, but we don't always have the words. We have the actions, but I tried to include the words here. And I end um, the book at at the elderly because most of the studies on enslaved people's prices only focused on prime male. I have noticed that. You're right. 18 to 30 years old, you know, men, 18 to 30 years old. And I wanted to look at all enslaved people, male, right. female, old, and young, um, because they were all valued. At, or they were all, excuse me, let me, let me clarify that. Mm-hmm. They, all had either, um, they all had a monetary value mm-hmm. placed upon their bodies. Um, sometimes that monetary value was $0 or no value as they aged or when they were too young to be um, considered worthy of any kind of commodity, you know, any kind of valuation. Sure, sure, sure. So by age one, they were about $25 to $100, you know, the, and the, the, it would go up. They were about $100 at age one, and they would go up 
you know, twenty five to thirty dollars a year, depending on who was who was um, appraising them. Mm-hmm. So I thought the book would end at death, you know, when enslaved people died. You know, I had evidence of people being hung um, for committing crimes or for resisting or rebelling, rebelling like Nat Turner. I write about his death. Mm-hmm. And after they were hung, um, their bodies were then appraised. Mm-hmm. And sometimes um, enslaved men and women who committed crimes and that were executed by the state, their former owners were then compensated for the value of their dead bodies. Mm. And that's what took me in a whole different direction and surprised me. Um, people ask me, well, what, what surprised you about your research? I had no idea that the commodification or the, the selling and trading extended beyond the natural life wow. into of death. people. Into death. And that you know, was something that I'm still grappling with and I'm still writing about. And I'm going to continue to write about it. I'm interested in that. So we have this domestic cadaver trade that I write about in the last chapter of the book. And that these enslaved people, some, not all, because white bodies, uh, poor whites, uh, criminals, you know, people that were in almshouses. So it's not just uh, enslaved, formerly enslaved bodies, but Mm -hmm. those were the bodies that I was interested in. Sure, um, for your research. Yes, for my research and to make it consistent to what I was studying. um, Those bodies were then put involved, put in this trade of a cadaver trade that was an underground market and the bodies were sold for five to thirty dollars to medical schools and they used them for dissection and to study for anatomical research and that's how the book ends with this cadaver trade Mm. and we talked a little bit um you know offline before we got started officially about you know um place i used to live um in richmond and some of the research that had been done there you know on um uh, you know, the cadavers. And, you know, we can talk about that, you know, a little bit. I know you mentioned a little bit in, in your book. And then also mm-hmm. it just reminds me of when I was an undergrad in North Carolina. You know, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. And there is a uh, famous, uh, uh, locally famous, <laughs> not nationally mm-hmm. famous, uh, picture of some medical students out in the woods on a part of campus now that, you know, has buildings. And you can see these medical students and they're working on a body. And I had a, a history professor um, mentioned to me one time, uh, look, look more carefully at that body. And mm-hmm. you can tell it was a, it was a black, um, yep. you know, it was a, it was, it was a black body. And I know some students were looking at doing some, uh, research on that, trying to find out more, uh, you know, about that person. I don't know, um, what, what they were able, ever able to find, but, you know, it, you know, and talking with you today and, you know, and, and reviewing your book, it reminded me of some of that. And what book well, is that? The the book is The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation, that nation being the United States of America. And I'm here on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel with the author, Dinah Ramey Berry. The book is published by Beacon Press, and she is a professor and associate professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin, the Longhorns. (laughs) Right. <laughs> hook them horns. Yeah, hook them, hook them horns. Well, she is a so Californian. Listen. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm born in Cal- born and raised, but my, my family, I'm a Philly girl kind of deep in because my mom and dad are, are from Philly ah. and P- Pittsburgh and, and Philadelphia. But I have to say, back to the picture that you just described. Yes, ma'am. About, uh, that was taken on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually on page 177 of the book. Ah. 
Um, you might not have had it in yours because you had an early, early, right. early version of it. Nope, that's um, it. Is it there? Damn, okay, that's yeah. it. You got that's it. That's the picture. And what I write about in in chapter six and chapter four a little bit about um, there were African American male uh, janitors that worked at these universities and mm-hmm. medical colleges that were um, primarily their labor was in the dissection room. Mm-hmm. Not only did they help clean, um, but some of these gentlemen knew more about the human body than the medical students did because they had been enslaved by the university mm-hmm. and they were owned by the university faculty and they worked there and they had been working there some, some of them all of their lives. And so these resurrection men or grave robbers or janitors mm-hmm. um, took a very uh, central role in this cadaver trade. And I'm actually, my next project is on these, these gentlemen oh, um, because okay. they were married their wives worked in the dissection room, and they often had children. So we talk about enslaved labor, right? Mm-hmm. You look at how sometimes there was a domestic servant that worked in the house, mm-hmm. and they taught their children that trade. And so sometimes you'd see a mother and a daughter and a father and a son wow. who were body servants in the enslavers' homes. Well, I'm arguing that these janitors or resurrection men taught the same business to their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a whole different aspect of slave labor that no, no – very few of us have considered to this point. It reminds me of the Morgan Freeman character in Glory. Yes, yes, you know, absolutely. He, he was on the battlefield, and you know that was that was kind of his job. When you was describing it, it immediately made me think of, um, you know, his, his character there. Wow. Well, yeah, we'll have to yeah. talk a little bit more, um, you know, about, about your, uh, you know, your upcoming work there. But yes, mm-hmm. you know, to see that picture again, you know, you yeah. know, in the book, I was like, wow, that's that's it. You were you were dead on it. You were, that, that, yeah. that's it. And so you can imagine me as a younger person, you know, like mm. wow, you know, mm-hmm. seeing that because you know I kept thinking, man, that that could have been me. Exactly. Or and, you know, one of my relatives. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I also look at you know when you look at when you get the book, it's on page one seventy seven, and mm-hmm. I encourage listeners if you do read it. Um, to take a look, it's, it's one of the most arresting images. Yes. Um, I've seen a lot of those, um, and I didn't realize it until I started presenting. And if I've done, like, presentations on the book and I have mm-hmm. that slide, I've finally now, after a couple months of, of speaking about the book, I realize I need to kind of give people a trigger warning about it. Right. Um, and also just let them know, like, okay, I'm getting ready to put an image up that's kind of disturbing. Because when you look closely, the gentleman on the table who is African-American mm-hmm. – his head is cut off, like so. It's it's half mm-hmm. open, and you. I've seen the the you know high res the TIFF file, mm-hmm. so I can zoom in. Um, so they've already opened up his his cranium and they've looked inside, uh, looked inside to see, or maybe they've already done a partial dissection. Mm-hmm. But it's basically an outdoor dissection. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an African American man sitting in the front, that's sitting on a pail. He's probably the janitor mm-hmm. who then has to clean it. So what does it mean to sit there and see these bodies? Um, knowing that that could be you, you know, I just, I think about that. Those are the kinds of questions I ask. And this is before, you know, the Anatomical Gift Act of 1968, when mm-hmm. we can determine for ourselves what we wanted to have happen to our bodies when we die. So some of these bodies were taken illegally um, and put in a trade and, and, and to the dismay of, of those who knew about it. And we can, you know, uh, I, I'm just, taken aback by that image because it just brings me back to my undergraduate years in the 90s. But um, we can talk about this a little bit more um, offline, um, Donna, but uh, I had some people try to tell me that was not a black man in that image. 
Yeah, it is. You're right. They tried I've to tell me it wasn't. It. Yeah. yeah, they tried mm-hmm. to tell me it was not a black man, and that it, because it was a cadaver, his his skin was dis, discolored. Uh, mm-hmm. You know all that, mm-hmm. but you know you got to remember the time period. This was this yeah. was early early nineties where they did not want to, you know, maybe directly address some of those issues or um um, um challenges. Yeah, wow. we do know that the majority. I mean, we do know that the majority of those that made it to the dissection table. Mm-hmm were African-American, and that's been historically proven by a number of scholars. It doesn't mean that they were the only ones on the dissection table, but disproportionately African-Americans were dissected in medical schools more so than other individuals. And like you mentioned, you know, those who weren't African-American, maybe the, the poor. Yes. Or, you know, you know. Unclaimed, and, unclaimed bodies. Unclaimed people, vagrants. Yep. And, yes. And, and such. And we're here with the author of the price for their pound of flesh. If you came in late to the podcast, you're, you're probably wondering, what in the world are they talking about? <laughs> but we're talking about the value of the enslaved, meaning slaves, from womb to grave in the building of a nation, that nation being our nation, the United States of America. So this is important, important uh, research that Donna's doing here, and it's really important history. This is not just African history or African-American history. This is American history, and it's something that's very important for us to really consider and process. And this book is published by Beacon Press and the author, Dinah Ramey Berry of the University of Texas at Austin, Associate Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies. And I am your host here on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel, yours truly, James Stansel. And I know it's getting I'm looking at my clock here. I know <laughs> Dinah's got a, a student who's going to be coming in. Uh, <laughs> looking, <laughs> office looking for, hours. Yeah, for office <laughs> hours. So, you know, we're going to you know try to wrap it up soon. But I, I, I you know, Dinah, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us about, you know, about your book. You know, I think, you know, like we talked about during the interview. Wow. I mean, it's uh, you know, this is important research. And a lot of people don't really know or understand or they've kind of gotten the kind of I hate to say whitewashed, but maybe the sanitized mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sanitized version of uh, bleached, bleached Mm -hmm. white (laughs) version Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a history there. And and you kind of keep it real and your research is outstanding and you let them know, particularly for people who are interested in economic history or Mm -hmm. the numbers behind some of these things. If if someone wants to question some of this research, you've got it all in there. I have the data to prove it. So there's no no question there. So before we, you know, kind of wrap up, I want to give you a chance, Dinah, maybe to, to talk also about. You mentioned a little bit this earlier some of your current or future research or other projects that you're that you're working on that you want to share, and maybe mm-hmm. you know if people are interested in maybe talking with you directly. You know, oh, how absolutely. can they do that? So what, real quick, one other thing I want to say about the book is that um, I'm sure if people have been listening, they might think, "Gosh, it sounds really heavy. It's really depressing." But there's if there's one positive takeaway with uh-huh. this is that I talk about this value that called their soul values, mm-hmm. a value that, that cannot be commodified. It's a space inside themselves where they understood who they were and they, they had uh, dignity and pride and strength, and they tapped into that space. Yes. And that was the one piece of them that nobody could touch, nobody could take from them. And so I, I show throughout the book ways in which African Americans express their soul values. And so I want, re- I want listeners to understand that you know, it is a tough read and it is a hard history, mm-hmm. but slavery was a hard experience right. for anybody, anybody involved, you know. Um, but I think that that if, when you think about their values of their souls and how they made sense of themselves, um, I think that some people will find this um, encouraging or uplifting. So I just wanted to, to say that. Thank you. Thank you for adding that because it is, it is kind of tough to talk about some of these <laughs> 
yeah. these topics. And you said men, I think we talked about a little bit before, that men have really reached out to you the most in terms of being affected by your work. Absolutely. When I've done live radio, the majority of the callers were African-American males um, that called in. Um, the first you know, three chapters in most of my work, my mm-hmm. written work up until maybe this book, um, have been about enslaved women. I did an encyclopedia on enslaved women in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but this book is, deals with gender and slavery, which, and so I look at the, the male and female experience. So I've noticed that African-American men, um, a lot, I've received personal emails and letters of people saying thank you um, for showing the strength of a people um, that have been portrayed as dejected, depressed, um, and just destroyed. Mm-hmm. And they said, thank you for not portraying, thank you for showing us another side to the story. Because wow. um, some people did experience slavery and were dejected and were depressed and were, you know, were socially dead, as, as mm-hmm. scholars write about. There were a number of people like that. But there were also folks that some of those four million people who were freed in 1865 had a soul value that allowed them to survive. Um, and so a lot of the callers and people that have written to me and reached out to me um, have been African-American men um, saying thank you for showing us a, a perspective of us that doesn't emasculate us. Mm. So I just I just um, want to acknowledge that. And it was I didn't have I didn't have any um, I didn't anticipate. And I had no idea how people would receive the book. Mm-hmm. But that was um, that's been a, a part of a reception that has been really, really comforting and nice to know. Um, So some of my, I've also gotten letters from elderly people Mm. saying, thank you for for including our stories. I'm not just African-Americans, people of all different nationalities saying, thank you for caring about the elderly enough to write about them. Um, To to date, there's only one book length study on elderly slaves on the plantation by a scholar named Stacy Close. Other than that, there's no studies on the elderly. Mm. Um, so what I'm working on next um, is I am writing, I'm working on a book that I'm under contract with, with Beacon Press, okay. um, called A Black Woman's History of the United States, ah. uh, written for a, a wide audience, co-authored with a colleague, a friend of mine named Dr. Callie Gross, okay. who teaches at Wellesley University in Connecticut. Oh, okay. And um, so we're finishing that up. And it's written for a general audience, and it's you know, and it's not it's not just the stories of of women that we've heard of. It's mm-hmm. it's Rosa Parks and and Harriet Tubman, but it's also of, of women that you may not have heard of, like Mom Bet, you know, and mm-hmm. Margaret Garner, and mm-hmm. stories d- during the whole period that you may not have, have, have really made it to the history books. Okay. Per se. Um, I'm also doing work on slave naming patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to have names and and be named certain names, um, derogatory names in particular, that I've come across in doing my research, and I was trying to make sense of some of these names. Um, and you can find out what I'm doing by my personal website, mm-hmm. which is just my full name. It's just uh, Dr. Dinah, D-A-I-N-A, Ramey, R-A-M-E-Y, Barry, B-E-R-R-Y, dot com. Mm-hmm. And I'll, there's, if you want to reach out to me, you want to tell me your thoughts about the book, or questions about it, um, my speaking engagements, where I'm coming to next mm-hmm. to speak, local bookstores, universities, what have you. That's all there. There's a contact form where you can write to me directly on the website, drdinaramiberry.com. All right. Sounds good. And Houston, don't worry. I'm, I'm going to get her to Houston. We've already been talking about getting her to yes. Houston. 
to to speak to some of our audiences, uh, you know, here in some of the various things I do with my nonprofit, Intellectual. And so she's coming to Houston, y'all. Don't worry. Yes, We're sir. Get it. We're I am. Get here. And I definitely want you to come back to New Books Network to talk about that book on black women's history. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And you also another year. <laughs> and you mentioned too something you wanted you were working about the um resurrection men. I think you mentioned earlier. Yes, it's called um te- technically it's called uh, blood ties. Okay. And it's looking at the the generational um labor of enslaved families mm-hmm. that are owned by universities that worked in medical colleges. Mm-hmm. And so what what's going to be out first? Probably the Black Women's History you yes, think is Black that? Women's History okay. will be out first. That's the next book. And then probably the um, blood ties will be after that. I don't have a contract for that yet. That's all right. You're, but you're I'm, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> so that's two now. That's two more coming, Donna, that, it, that the audience is going to get to hear from you again, right, on New yes, Network. Yes, absolutely. It'd be my right. pleasure to come back. Absolutely. Well, I know I don't know if your student is pounding on the door yet, but we're going to have <laughs> to let Donna go because she has to handle her university obligations as an associate professor at University of Texas at Austin and hopefully future Full professor yes, at the University of Texas so. at Austin. So <laughs> hopefully your your supervisors or people are listening right now. I'm giving her a, my full endorsement with my power <laughs> of the New Books Network at the African American Studies Channel. So we're here with the author, Diana Ramey Berry. Her book, Their Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation, published by Beacon Press. Y'all go check it out. It's great. It's got some numbers, but this is important history that we all need to know about. So we definitely want to thank Donna for coming and spending some time with us today on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. So on that note, we're going to close. We're going to let Donna handle her academic work and get those office hours going. But Donna, if you don't mind, can you say goodbye for the audience for me, please? Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for your support. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Donna, for your time. The book, one more time, is The Price. For their pound of flesh, check it out on Amazon. You can click right through from our page on the New Books Network. So, one more time, take care, everybody. This is the New Books Network. Your host, James Stamps, on the African American Studies channel. Peace and love. All right, we're back here on the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dinah. I really enjoyed talking with her. Uh, she's a, a Texan like myself now and so, you know so we talked a little bit about some Texas things um, offline but this is a really a, a great book and she's going to be doing some book tours you know her book recently came out here in um, I think it was January she's going to be going around the country so you know visit her website and see when she's going to be coming to a, a town near you um, and the book is The Price for Their Pound of Flesh The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation and her name is Dinah Ramey Berry she's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and the publisher of this book is Beacon Press and she's very accessible if you wanted to contact her directly and you know maybe share some of your stories or ask her some questions about her, her research she's definitely open and available you can talk some track with her too she was a division one track athlete at UCLA but anyway I hope you enjoyed the interview and uh, come back and check us out again on the New Books Network the African American Studies channel for some more exciting interviews with today's authors the people that you want to hear about talking about the things that you want to listen to. Peace and love.